Hello and welcome to Joe's Boys. This is a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Pitchfork, Billboard, and Vanity Fair. And I'm here today with a very special guest, Egan Dean. Egan Dean is a PhD candidate at Rutgers University. Their dissertation, American Literary Gender and Its Discontents, The Literary Production and Uses of Hermeneutic Gender, in the long 19th century in America. Sounds like the smart person version of everything that we talk about on this show. (laughs) They're also a graduate student coordinator and an instructor in Rutgers English department, teaching courses on writing, composition, and literature. Uh, Most recently, the American 19th century and its uses and sex, drugs, and human souls, inventing American gender from the enlightenment to today. They've won a half dozen prizes for their scholarship, and they're on the board of the Margaret Fuller Society. Basically, they are the most highly qualified guest we've ever had on this show. Egan, welcome to Joe's Boys. How are you? I'm awesome. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> what an intimidating uh, introduction. I don't know if I know that guy. That's so cool. <laughs> What's yours? I was like, on your... <laughs> On your CV, like, oh my God, like, (laughs) that's super flattering. Thank you. Yeah, I feel I'm very, very glad that you've decided to join us. What's your relationship to Little Women? So like I think many guests on your show, I first read Little Women as a little woman um, (laughs) back in the early 2000s. Um, It was a gift from my mom. I think I originally had a children's version that was just the actual first book before she expanded it. To Little Women, I read the Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy version, and then later moved on to the more serious, more adult second half. It was one of the first really big chapter books that I read. My mom got a little Joe March Christmas ornament to celebrate it that I still have. I didn't revisit it a lot um, later in life, but now I do scholarship on kind of Alcott's greater bibliography, so I've circled back around to it. Yeah. So what have you studied in the greater bibliography? Because I'm uh, myself diving into that bibliography and I'd love to to chat about that. Right. I know that you're also on the Alcott listserv. There was a recently rediscovered short story. We're always getting new stuff. Probably my two favorite Alcott writings are her revised letters from the when she was nursing in the war, as well as her novel work. The first one's called Hospital Sketches and the novel yes. work is a late novel of hers or a later. Okay. Yeah. I was, I was, when you said novel work, I was like, so like moods, et cetera, but like, no, literally work. That's, That's called work. <laughs> yeah. And I, and yeah. I think it's a good one to bring up for this chapter too, because mm-hmm. it's all about work and its uses and its emotional and moral charges. Right. Yeah. No, Marnie makes that very clear. <laughs> we'll get to that. And so which Marx sister are you for the purposes of this podcast? Keep in mind, Lori is a Marx sister. I feel bad. You told me people haven't been claiming him, but I'm not. <laughs> I don't know that I identify with them. Um, That's okay. I would definitely say I'm a Joe. I'm a writer and an academic since now. I've always wanted to be some sort of writer. When I first read Little Women, I identified with Joe up until she cut her hair. And then when she cut her hair and was devastated about it, I wasn't sure how I felt about that. I thought she should be excited. I was a big Mulan fan. I was looking for that (laughs) development. But as I got older and when I cut my hair short for the first time as part of transition, I cried too. It was big. It was kind of difficult. It was a change. It was exciting, but it was definitely emotionally overwhelming. And so her mourning over her hair, I thought, alienated me from her as a child. But once I got older and I had my own short hair moment, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a big feeling. I cried, yeah. too. And so I really feel like I reclaimed her <laughs> through my, <laughs> you know. Yeah, no, we, we were just talking about that. Um, I mean, this was last chapter with uh, Vicki Johnson, who's this amazing butch children's book author about the difficulties of that scene and how. We're like, Joe, why aren't you happy? And Joe's just sobbing and just, and, you know, thinking back to our own kind of moments of moving toward gender nonconformity and just like, even how moving closer for the first time can just illuminate how big the gap is between where you are and where you want to go. So weirdly, I, I mean, we'll get into it, but it seems like Joe is more at ease with the haircut in this chapter. Yeah, you know, like, for sure. And I think this is one of those markers in the novel as well of big change, what that mm-hmm. 
really sets off a lot of emotion. The moment I think when Marby goes away is a big grow up moment. And I think from an adult perspective, Joe's reaction makes much more sense. Like I cried on the first day of college and that was a good thing. Mm-hmm. And I cried <laughs> when I cut my hair and the emotional charge of the big feeling moments and big change moments. I think yes. it's one of the things that feel so human about this book and one of the things I love. Yeah, well, this is an interesting chapter because just for its structure, because it's a big change moment, but it's narrated in a very unique way. So do you want to take us away and let us know what happens in chapter 16, Letters? All right. In chapter 16, Letters, it begins with a very emotionally charged and at the same time, very quaint and sweet scene of everyone getting up a little bit earlier than usual and getting Marmy ready for the big trip. Everyone's trying to keep on a brave face. It's a little bit hush hush. Have you ever gotten up really early to catch a flight? It kind of has that vibe. They get her ready and send her on her way. This is a big moment for Meg and Joe to step up. And a big moment where we see Mr. Brooke really entering the family. And now uh, the second half of the chapter, we get letters from all of the inmates at home of varying length and varying voices (laughs) that give more or less the same, all is well here, please don't worry, we can handle ourselves message from a variety of different voices. Yes, indeed. Yeah, there's some... Some interesting looks into the voices of characters we don't often get to hear from first person. There's some potentially hibernophobic writing from Hannah, (laughs) which I'm sure we'll get into. But yeah, I am so excited to get into this with you. Um, You had a very interesting angle kind of pitched about the letters. So, I mean, do you want to just start at the very beginning in that kind of cold gray dawn waking up, getting ready to go scene. What strikes you about this scene, rereading it now? I know you mentioned kind of the similarity to like waking up early to catch a flight. Where do you see those parallels? For me, I suppose it's the way that everyone is moving around the very familiar space of the house in a very (laughs) defamiliarized way. The trunk is in the hall, the bonnet lays on the sofa, they're sitting around the table earlier than usual, but it doesn't see people aren't really eating. There's that very <laughs> tense feeling where it seems like anyone could cry at any moment, but are they trying very hard to be brave? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm struck by just the ways that the March sisters are kind of dealing with sadness. It says Meg's eyes kept filling in spite of herself. So Meg's display of emotion is open, even though she might not want it to be. We know that Joe thinks tears are unmanful. So Joe just keeps like hiding her face (laughs) so no one can see her get emotional. And then it looks like Beth and Amy's, they wore a grave, troubled expression as if sorrow was a new experience to them. And I mean, we know that the marches, their life is not all rosy. There's been a lot of experiences of poverty. Uh, we, We know that Amy has been through it. There's that earlier chapter where, you know, Amy gets struck by the teacher and has a tough moment. And there's a beautiful passage where Alcott says, you know, like it was a shock for someone who previously her life had been governed by love alone. But this is even more of a serious intrusion into their, the sense of community fostered by their home, which is something we've talked about again and again, is the March family as commune almost, (laughs) as a real community. We've also talked about how, so like most of Little Women is, I would say like borderline auto-fictional, It's very much based on Alcott's own life and the life of her family. But what's interesting here is the addition of Hannah and something that I've come to realize in like talking about this book every week (laughs) and reading it so closely is that the addition of Hannah, the maid, who was like not at all, like the, the Alcott's could not afford household help. It was not in the picture. It kind of allows for the marches to be a, like a two mom household, right? (laughs) Yeah, you know, like it's it's this fantasy of like the man is away and these two women are running the house, caring for each other, taking on different responsibilities. Even in this scene where Marmy is, you know, going off to visit the husband, Hannah is taking on the wifely role. It's really interesting. Do you have any thoughts on on that? Like Hannah as like lesbian mom? <laughs> yeah. I really like the emphasis you've put on previous episodes about the feminine communality of Mm -hmm. the space and how, especially how that's what attracts Lori. 
and about how special of a space that is for the literature. And one of the things I love about this chapter is it feels like it sets up some of what the novel work does. So the novel work, an 1873 novel by Alcott about a woman who wants to seek her own fortune, doesn't want to be supported by her family, who is mean to her in kind of a Jane Eyre kind of way. And she goes through a variety of different professions, picks up friends along the way, including a previously enslaved woman, including just a hardworking lower class woman, including someone who clearly used to be a sex worker. It's more implied, but um, someone who's trying to get out of that mm-hmm. work. And at the end, she does marry, spoilers, she does marry and have a very brief married life. And then her husband almost immediately dies in the Civil War. And all of these women she's become close to move into her house mm-hmm. and create a kind of community of quote work together. And it ends on almost this semi-socialist commune <laughs> Amos Bronson Alcott vibe. <laughs> but the emphasis is on the ways that labor can build community and solidarity across lines. Mm-hmm. And I think that vibe of solidarity is not quite working in the same way in this chapter in Little Women. You're very right about the class in based and kind of racially racially inflected way that Hannah's letter works because yeah. one of the things that's interesting about it sorry now I'm really going on a tangent no please this is one of the things that's most interesting about it is that it is a supposed to be a written document but it is written in a way that would reflect the way she spoke So this kind of orthography with the way that things are written to express how they might sound, this kind of orthography would make sense if it were someone else reporting her speech. People don't generally misspell things in exactly the same way they mispronounce it. I'm looking a couple sentences in and Hannah writes, Joe does be all for going ahead. It's not likely that she would spell that does or later to, she misspells calculate, calculate with apostrophes, which is a very nice yes. and neat orthography for her own accent, which is just not usually how people, especially in this period, wrote. So it's more, we're more getting a portrait of Hannah mm-hmm. than we are getting Hannah's portrait of herself, which I think sets this letter apart from the others. Yes. Yeah. And it's unclear if Hannah is writing this by hand or if someone is dictating for her, but again, like it's written in a phonetic Irish accent, right? It's dear Miss March. I just drop a line to say we get on fussed, right? It's not, (laughs) you know, I, I said hibernophobia and I wasn't really, I wasn't kidding. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's tricky. And, you know, we are jumping ahead, but it's, it's worth talking about the way that Hannah is racialized apart from the others. When we did an episode earlier on with Daniel Okrich talking a bit about in that episode of about kind of like anti-Irish sentiment in New England in this period and how prevalent that was. And Hannah is certainly like a nice character. She's a member of the family. Like I said, I think she really takes on a proto-mom role in this chapter and even a proto-wife role. But she's very much set apart by being Irish. She's always domestic. There's a very telling little aside that even Hannah's familiar face looked unnatural as she flew about her kitchen with her nightcap on, which means that even living in this home and being so close to the marches, it's weird to see her in her night clothes. Like she's, there's there's certainly like a family help role, right? She's both in, but not of their family intimacy. And I think maybe that power dynamic is what I wanted to kind of call attention to. But I liked what you said about she does have a mothering role, but I was surprised by what you said about like the wifely role. Whose wife do you mean? Like Mrs. March or like Meg's? No, I mean, Mrs. March. I mean that, you know, Mrs. March is getting ready to go and she's sitting in the front hall looking pale and and trying to eat. And Hannah's like, all right, I'm going to make food. I'm going to do this, this, this. I'm going to get the work done. I'm going to make the household run. What I'm saying is that Marmee is someone's wife, but Hannah is now like doing the wife thing for that, that we've seen Marmee do for other people, right? 
Yeah, you know, I I hear what you're saying. And I Mm -hmm. think that kind of pulls out how we see the wife thing, an expression of sort of labor, right? Yes. Feminized labor Mm -hmm. for Miss March that Miss March would do for Mr. March conceptually. But it's really, it both draws attention to the emotional charge, the sentimentality of that care labor, as Mm -hmm. well as the way that feminized care labor kind of gets kicked down the road along the lines of power here. So I think it's kind of a both and thing where where Mm -hmm. Hannah is both a part of the family and kind of from a cheeky perspective, it's a two mom household, but it's also very particular in this era, Mm -hmm. racialized power dynamics. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, The big thing that we're talking around here is the, the extent to which sometimes the wife was the maid, right? Right. A lot of the time right, the wife was, was doing the work of a maid and simply not being compensated for it, right? Yeah. I mean, we're talking about Hannah. We might as well talk about Hannah's letter while we're doing it. Um, no, please. Off track. We can go back to this. Is, this is a structureless podcast. Perfect. We will get to the other letters. We will get to Joe and the, the girlies, but I'm thinking here, maybe you had this thought as well. The other significant Alcott work in which there is written dialect like this is uh, her short story, My Contraband, which is, for anyone who's unfamiliar, that is a short story that she wrote. Um, And Alcott was a hardline abolitionist. We've talked about that in previous chapters, like really risked a lot and gave a lot in personal terms to help the effort to abolish slavery. And so My Contraband is a story about a white nurse who finds herself in a civil war hospital. And there's two soldiers. There's one man who's volunteered for the Union Army after escaping from slavery, after liberating himself from slavery, I should say. And one is his white half-brother who is a Confederate soldier, right? And so it's a tale full of drama and anguish in this ward. And we get a lot of first-person dialogue from the a young man who's freed himself. And it's written in Alcott's imagined African-American dialect, for lack of a better word. And I'm certainly not going to read any of it out loud (laughs) on the podcast. You can look it up for yourself. But I was struck to see in her letters, the Selected Letters volume, she writes to someone after the publication of My Contraband and is like, oh man, I just completely blew it writing in that man's voice. Like I I had no idea. I got so many vernacular things wrong and the voice was all off. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, Lou. <laughs> yeah, there's, a, there's kind of a lot of things going on there. And a lot of them are reflected as well in hospital sketches, which are yeah. we're writing about kind of the same thing, time that you really did spend yeah. in the hospitals. And... There's a couple of layers. One of them is that we are truly approaching a period in American literature where there's a big focus on regionalism. And there's a belief, is this interesting for me to explain? Yes, yeah, please. Yeah, there's there's a belief that in some way the internal diversity of ways of life, including speech patterns, within the U.S. is going to pass away, especially after the imagined greater unification of the U.S. following the Civil War. There's a sort of anxiety Mm -hmm. about U.S. homogeneity, and that is responded to in part by efforts to, quote-unquote, capture with kind of all the extractive vibe that that has, to, quote-unquote, capture the ways of speaking and ways of living of various U.S. regions. This happens often by people who are from those regions as well as from people who aren't. And uh, that's a lot of the place that you start to see dialect writing coming from and like the orthography of dialect writing that you almost kind of see Alcott play with here. At the same time, it's important to draw some like fine lines between the abolitionist work that Alcott and others like her do Mm -hmm. and beliefs in things like racial equality, which people, many historical people from this period, from Emerson to Margaret Fuller, and I'm not totally sure about Alcott, were hardline abolitionists or abolitionists in different ways 
without necessarily being invested or being educated about racial equality, which is a totally, mm. yeah, like a much higher, much, much higher bar. Um, and there's a moment in not to narrate at length a book that you haven't read and the readers haven't read, but there's this, <laughs> you guys should all read hospital sketches. There's this moment in hospital sketches where she scoops up a small black child that is running around in the kitchen where she is. And a Southern woman is a nurse there and performs the Southern bad guy role of saying, you don't touch him. And the Alcott self-insert character performs the good abolitionist role of holding the child, talking about how he should be loved like any child. She kisses him. She frames herself as a liberty holding baby Africa. Um, is about this kind of the terminology that she uses. But at the same time, she calls him greasy and she calls him a spider. And she depicts him getting underfoot in certain ways under the stairs when she tries to leave and becoming a nuisance to her because he seems to take that affection seriously in a way that she didn't. And I think this is one of those moments very much like my contraband where you start to see the ways that really morally committed abolitionism and really thoughtful ways of treating Black peers or Black children as equally human are disjointed. And you see this change over Alcott's lifetime. I think that the formerly enslaved woman in work is handled a little bit differently, but I think this is one of those finer nuances in 19th century scholarship that we are often trying to kind of unpeel that. And I think that kind of also brings us back to Hannah, because while Hannah is not Black, but she's also not read as white in this period, this was before Italian, Irish, and Jewish people to any degree were considered white. But there's kind of, again, a both and here where there's an adoration of Hannah and a very particular situation of Hannah in her not only gendered, but racialized and classed space. Yes. Egan, you are so smart. I want to have you on every week. (laughs) I've taught hospital sketches before. Yeah. Oh, I can tell. Let me tell you guys, you should read hospital sketches. Um, (laughs) I've taught hospital sketches as evidence for Alcott's queerness and gender nonconformity, mm-hmm. but, and you can take this out if this is too. No, please, please. But <laughs> the name of the self-insert character is Tribulation Periwinkle. Periwinkle as in violet, as in queer, but everyone <sighs> in the book calls her Trib. And I pointed that out <sighs> as queer evidence to in a graduate seminar. And then I had to explain to professor what that meant. So don't bring that up in a graduate seminar unless you're comfortable explaining a sex act to your professor or are very confident that they understand the slang. Oh so, my god! Warning. Now, so I'm I like definitely screamed out loud there, but like, was tribbing in use at that time, or was that just a the word? The word tribade is older than that period. I don't know how popular it was at the time. But a tribate is almost as old as the word like sodomite, to my understanding. I'm not an uh, etymologist, but the word tribade for women who had sex with each other, particularly with their genitals, was in use. I can't, I haven't done the research to know whether or not Louisa May Alcott would know that, but I find it hard to guess that she didn't, particularly with the last name Periwinkle. Oh my God. Well, okay. I need to sit with that for a second. (laughs) And I am going to need to put that aside so we can get back to like race and ethnicity. And I hate to do because there is some bona fide lesbian content, capital L, capital C in this chapter, which we will get into. (laughs) But getting back for a moment to the notion of how can someone who is a fervent abolitionist who will drop everything, literally risk their life to serve in a civil war hospital in, for the cause of abolishing slavery, right? And who we know that Alcott, after recovering from the illness that almost ended her life, was like, okay, well, I'm feeling better. I'm going to go back down south and teach Black people how to read. And that plan got foiled for some reason. I can't imagine why. <laughs> but this was someone who really, in a serious way, dedicated a lot of their life and time and labor to abolishing slavery and who 
nonetheless, like you talked about even groups like Italians, Irish, Jewish people who were not considered white at this time. And those differences show up in Little Women. They show up in this chapter with regard to the way that Hannah's portrayed. There are a few very derogatory references to Jewish people in Little Women. We've talked a lot about Lori, so I don't necessarily need to get into that right now. But you mentioned Bronson Alcott. And in John Madison's book, he goes into Bronson Alcott's views about racial equality. And Bronson Alcott, also an abolitionist, actually admitted Black students to one of his schools in Boston and stood by that decision, even when white families began pulling out their children en masse and the school failed and essentially drove the, the marches into poverty. Like that's alluded to in the Greta Gerwig film. Gerwig sort of collapses the Alcott biography into the March biography. And we get this conversation between Aunt March and Joe about how your father thought that teaching freedmen's children was more important than, so like that, that's from life, right? Like I that was Bronson Alcott, like put everything on the line to educate black children and lost the families, everything. Right. And yet Madison details Bronson's beliefs about skin color and how people of dark complexion are, their souls aren't quite as pure as people of light complexion. And he's not just, he's talking about Black people, of course. He's also literally talking about Lou, who had her older sister's skin was like a bit fairer. Her hair color was a bit lighter and Lou's hair was darker. And, you know, he's saying like, this must be why Lou was so wild. It's because of this. So even someone who could walk the walk to that degree still held really deep-seated beliefs about what the color of a person's skin could mean. And I, I think that's inescapable in this time period, in this writing, right? In the Alcott family, it's really tricky. And today. And today. Uh, I think this is probably best addressed by someone who's in more detail, more closely engaged with the scholarship of the history of race. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think that there's quite a difference between the very wholehearted belief that Black people should not be property and Mm -hmm. the belief that Black people should have some rights. And then the belief that uh, like counter white supremacist beliefs on specifically deconstruct hierarchies of race, right? Those are three very different sorts of beliefs and behaviors. And you see Amos Brownson Alcott and everyone through history engaging in those beliefs at different levels at different times or not at all. And I think it's difficult to criticize our heroes in certain ways and up to including Lou Alcott or Margaret Fuller, who's like my obsession, yeah, but also has some real garbage takes and racist stuff. But I don't think we get any farther by apologizing for them or no, or I, I'm not saying you are, I don't think you are, yeah. but I, I think that that's one of the difficult things about reading, especially historical literature where the quiet part of white supremacy is a little bit easier for us to hear than it is in the quiet forms that we have these days. Yes. Yeah. No. And, and I think it's worth noting, like you and I are having this conversation and we're both white transmasculine people and we can exactly. like even... I think Little Women welcomes white queer people in, in a way that it doesn't welcome people of color in. I mean, I say that we just had Hannah Khan on a couple of episodes ago, and she talked about how reading Little Women as, as a young like Muslim American child, she could relate to a lot of elements of the story more than she could relate to in contemporary fiction. Like she had her childhood copy of Little Women and like it was just ripped to shit, like the spine was falling apart. And obviously this is a story that's popular all over the world. But when I say it welcomes in white people, I mean that many of the other guests I've had on here who are people of color, like I just like I never had an opportunity to read it. I immigrated when I was five years old. It just never came up. I never saw anything that I could relate to in the story. Whereas like you and I can read it and obviously out of time be like, oh, this is me. Joe is me. And so I think I think it right. is worth talking about how both not just the story itself, but the ways that it's been adapted and the ways that whiteness has been preserved in those adaptations can kind of continue to lock people out of the story. I know it's something that people who are writing adaptations can and have pushed against. Like Hannah Kahn wrote an amazing more to the story, which is 
puts little women in a Pakistani American family. I've definitely plugged and in our cover art, you can see um, so many beginnings by Bethany C. Morrow, which is like, what if little women were in a freed person's colony after the civil war, what then, or during the civil war rather. So I'm glad that those things are taking place. It's just, it's a bummer to find like boulderized Irish speech <laughs> in little women. You know, especially when we consider the ways that, you know, I'm thinking about Sojourner's Truth, quote unquote, anti a woman speech, which was transcribed in this really boulderized parody of African-American speech when contemporary sources suggest that, in fact, she was not saying, aren't I a woman? It was she was right right? it was paradise yeah it was given a southern accent when yeah i believe her first language was german or dutch right (laughs) like yeah she was enslaved in the new york new jersey area yeah so it's upsetting to see it here i think it's worth calling attention to as much as you know hannah is a a lesbian icon and the second march mom and we've talked about that at length i don't want to keep you here for a zillion years so let's set that aside for an instant and do we want to like move on to lesbianism yeah let's move on to lesbianism (laughs) the lesbian content of this i mean we've talked about the moms now what i want to talk about here is a couple of things i mean the elephant in the room i'm just going to read this and you can react to it they're writing letters now marmy has gone off to war they're kind of getting on by without her hannah's running the house meg is like stepping up to the plate being the eldest sister And Joe writes, we have such funny times and now I can enjoy them for everyone is so desperately good. It's like living in a nest of turtle doves. You'd laugh to see Meg head the table and try to be motherish. See, she gets prettier every day and I'm in love with her sometimes. And that's just, (laughs) and we move right on. What do we think of that? (laughs) I don't know how to read that at all, frankly. Yeah. (laughs) By context. Um, yes. These are my context clues from fifth <laughs> My guess would be that it's meant as a further uh, compliment of her. Yeah. Uh, it, I don't know, a, a great admiration of her, a joke. I'm not yeah. sure what to make of it at all. Although it could also be tied to the motherish idea that she, yeah. she loves uh, Meg mm. like a mother. Um, from the previous sentence, although it could yeah. be a bigger joke on her blossoming femininity in relationship to Joe's upcoming masculinity. Right. I think at the after the poem, Joe says, oh, maybe it's not Joe. Who says that Hannah guards her like a dragon? I don't recall. That is, oh my God, I think that is, oh, it's, it's uh, Grandpa Lawrence. Grandpa Lawrence. Yeah, the little girls are all well. Beth and my boy report daily. Hannah is a model servant, guards pretty Meg like a dragon. Right. There's greater and greater tension here around Meg's growing adulthood, growing femininity, and by implication, growing possibility of sexuality that you see pointed out twice here. I'm not, I don't know how to parse the (laughs) joke about being in love with Meg. And the other thing that I need to bring up, this is in chapter 20, when Lori is sort of telling, is this, who is, what is this conversation? Anyway, in chapter 20, there's a conversation. Oh, it's between Marmy and Joe. And they're talking about how Meg and Mr. Brooke are growing closer. And Joe says, I just wish I could marry Meg myself and keep her safe in the family. So that plus this, (laughs) I mean, it's uncomfortable to talk about. When I was, um, I wrote a piece for Oprah Daily a couple months ago about just kind of my own research on Little Women and Lou Alcott and my forthcoming book project, which you can read more about at my Twitter, which I'll plug later anyway. But I had this line about how, like I quoted those lines and said, lesbian readers can see themselves when Joe says, I'm in love with Meg and I want to marry. (laughs) And my editor was like, I mean, do we want to take this out? Like, we don't want to be seen as promoted incest. And I'm like, yeah, no, it's... (laughs) It's difficult that I think we know that Alcott explicitly expressed attraction to women. We know that she said, I've been in love with ever so many pretty girls and never once the least little bit with any man. And even if that wasn't strictly true of her whole life experience, we know that she said it, right? We know that she was attracted to women. And so it's interesting that in this world where maybe it's an expression of wanting 
a wife or wanting marriage with a woman. And Meg is literally just like, it sounds a little weird because it's kind of the only way it it can come out. Like, this is the only woman in my life. You know, (laughs) what does she say? She says, I'm in love with her sometime. Or I wish I could marry Meg myself. Like, there's sort of a funny sideways coming at like, huh, like I have these feelings and I don't really have an appropriate target for them. Does that make sense to you? Like, that's yeah, how I it also it. sounds to me like I wish I could take on a masculine role. And yes, Meg is looking yeah. for people to take on a masculine role for her. But it, it yeah. also sounds to me, it also reminds me of, and I hope to God this is relatable and I don't sound like a weirdo, <laughs> but yeah. when you're a little kid and you plan, oh, with your little <laughs> friends, I'll marry your brother and you marry my brother and then our <laughs> kids will get married and then we'll yeah. all be family forever, right? Yeah, yeah. It sort of sounds like that kind of desperate desire Mm -hmm. for a future of kin making to like bind close people that you know you don't have any real control over. And I think something that's happening for Joe right now, particularly Mm -hmm. because it's happening in this world of heterosexual marriage that she thinks is super gross, Um, (laughs) not only in terms of taking away her loved ones, but in terms of just being totally inconceivable to her, she says over and over again how much she doesn't like it. And it seems to me in certain ways like a pitch to kind of enter this world where men are in control of where women go. Mm, and where okay. she wants Meg to go is to stay exactly with her. And her only access to that control would be either be Meg's father and she wouldn't want to, I'm not, not to be Freudian, but to, she would either have to be Meg's father to be in charge. And she already likes yeah. the father she has or to be Meg's husband, to be in charge of where she goes. And I, I definitely take your point about the expression of desire to be near a woman, but I also see it as a desire to take on the place of a man in a society where men are the ones who have the power to keep their loved ones where they want them to be. That's it. Okay. Yeah. That's an interesting point. Cause obviously Joe's and Beth as well. Like there's this real desire for all of them to just like keep the family unit as it is forever. And outsiders have to be admitted very, very sparingly. Lori is a very special case. And Lori is also this kind of increasingly genderless figure <laughs> or, and also like kind of a, a way for Joe to experience boyhood. And being a boy, even to the extent that Joe gets to play brother and be the man of the house, even that's not the same as actually getting to experience boyhood with a boy the way that she does with Lori. And so maybe let's move on to or move back to the return to Joe's haircut here. So Meg says, your hair is becoming and it looks very boyish and nice, returned Meg, trying not to smile at the curly head, which looks comically small on her tall sister's shoulders. That's my only comfort says Joe, and touching her hat, a la Lori, away went Joe, feeling like a shorn sheep on a wintry day. So let's unpack that. Let's, let's get some suitcases out. What, what do you make of that, that little <laughs> aside? I think it's really sweet. I like the injected bit of humor about how small Joe's head looks. <laughs> I'm, I'm imagining the short, short hair on top of a very bundled up figure on this winter yeah. morning and how silly mm-hmm. that must look. But I also love that it's the boyishness that comforts Joe as well as the hat moment. It seems almost, I can imagine this scene. I don't remember if it's depicted exactly in the Greta Gerwig movie, but I remember Greta Gerwig noting that Saoirse Ronan and Timothy Chalamet shared wardrobe pieces. Yes, they did. (laughs) And I can imagine this being even Laurie's hat. And it almost seems Mm. like... They've like traded gender markers in a very delightful, playful way. But I also, for me, the shorn sheep metaphor mm-hmm. speaks not only to the coldness of the of yeah. the morning, but to me speaks to a, a sort of vulnerability and self-consciousness. Yeah. yeah. She's very aware of people's eyes on her hair. I think she's probably nervous to show it to Grandmother March. <laughs> yes. I can totally feel that feeling. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is everybody looking at me? <laughs> Can they all tell that I'm having a crisis about my hair and or gender in this moment? Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, as you spoke, I was thinking about kind of the first 
not even the first, because my kind of journey towards gender was like a stepping forward, stepping back. It was like a game of chicken almost. But anyway, there was a certain point where I was in a support group for men. I was at a point, I was like, okay, I'm in, I'm in this support group for men. And I show up and it's cis men, it's trans men. And at this point, I'm one of the more like early transition men in the group. I am hyper conscious of how different I look from the cis men around me. When I ask for he, him, when I say like, you're on the circle, like my pronouns are, my pronouns are he, him. (laughs) I feel so self-conscious. I feel like a shorn sheep on a wintry day. It's not a thousand percent like 24-7 gender euphoria. A lot of the time, it's a very vulnerable experience when you're gender non-conforming or in an early transition and not quote unquote passing yet to like put yourself out there. And like when gender is still something that other people have to give you to like have to ask them to give it to you. And so here's Joe, who is doing the best that she can in the way of transition, right? As far as this haircut and it's becoming, it looks very boyish and nice. She's got the hat a la Lori and she's like, oh, that's my only comfort. And I admitted this part, but like contextually, she is like, they're having this conversation as Joe is going over to Aunt March's house. And I'm sure, you know, Aunt March is going to read Joe the riot act and be like, what the hell have you done to your <laughs> Right? Ah, uh, yes. The grandparents, weird gender takes. Yes. Yeah. The... <laughs> Um, although you know my uh this is a, a total aside but like my grandma's 97 years old so like honestly i had not even like had the gender conversation with her it's not something we need to discuss and, but when my book came out last year grandma wanted to read it and it's all about transness so my dad ended up being like the one to have the talk with my grandmother and apparently her reaction was like oh yeah just like my cousin who like had a crew cut, wore suits, and drove sports cars. And I'm like, excuse me? <laughs> like, what? There's always some secret queer ancestor. Yeah. So, yeah. and in yeah. this case, it could have been, um, I love your theory of Aunt March in a lavender marriage. Yes. Oh my God. We don't get Aunt March's take on the haircut. So maybe I was stereotyping yeah. her and she's going to be totally cool with it. Yeah, I mean, who who knows? Who can say? We don't get that, which is really too bad for Aunt March enthusiasts. <laughs> but what we do get is both in this line about touching her hat a la Lori, and then in a, a piece from her letter to Marmy that I'm going to read, we get this sense of Joe and Lori increasingly like melting into being the same person. I'm going to read here. Oh, I must tell you that I came near having a quarrel with Lori. I freed my mind about a silly little thing, and he was offended. I was right, <laughs> but didn't speak as I ought. And he marched home saying he wouldn't come again till I begged pardon. I declared I wouldn't and got mad. It lasted all day. I felt bad and wanted you very much. Lori and I are both so proud. It's hard to beg pardon, but I thought he'd come to it for I was in the right. He didn't come. And just at night, I remembered what you said when Amy fell into the river. I read my little book, felt better. The little book is either Pilgrim's Progress or a New Testament. Resolved not to let the sun set on my anger and ran over to tell Lori I was sorry. I met him at the gate coming for the same thing. We both laughed, begged each other's pardon and felt all good and comfortable again. So I love that. I love Joe and Lori's relationship. And something that I have marked in my notes in the book so far is the degree to which as they become closer, the lines between like Joe's identity and Lori's kind of blur to the vanishing point. They really do become... It's that secret twin language. They really are vibrating on a frequency that no one else is privy to. Um, what, do you, what do you think of those uh, moments? I love it. I think it's so sweet. I love their relationship. I love how much closer they get to each other as they give each other permission to play with identities and with genders. I love... I would have been one of the little girls who wrote to... Alcott and begged Lou to put the two of them together and marry them because they are so close and best friends. And I understand from an adult perspective why that doesn't make sense, but I loved their relationship. I love how close they are. It's giving origin of love. It's giving Hedwig and the Angry Inch. It's giving T for T. I love it. Yeah, I can definitely see, you know, I I think the great tragedy of Joe and Lori And I'm saying this based, you know, like I've been reading Alcott's letters and in the letters to Alfie Whitman, who inspired, who part, one of the inspirations for Laurie anyway, there's a, after Little Women comes out, Alcott writes this 
mortifyingly ardent letter to Alfie, which is framed as like, oh, isn't it funny that so many people wanted Joe and Laura to get married? That's so stupid, huh? Anyway, how are you and your wife and your baby doing? And <laughs> a lot of the time, I think, like, wouldn't it be nice if we could just de-age ourselves and go and be like kids again and be best friends and, be, and you could be my boy? <laughs> It's giving a doll. <laughs> and I read this and was wincing for her. Like, it's so hard on sleeve. And like, I'm not even implying necessarily romantic attraction, but it's just so full of longing. And I was like, I just had this instinct reading and I was like, this was the end of the correspondence, wasn't it? And I flipped to the index and sure enough, last letter to Alfie. He did not reply to this letter. Like <laughs> something happened. Alfie got this letter. And maybe the wife saw it and was like, hmm, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Something happened. And that was kind of the end of the correspondence. The yeah, other is the preserved correspondence. You know, that's well, one of the ways the perhaps. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so who can say, but that's the last of the correspondence on record. And I, I was just, I was like, Ooh, <laughs> like he did not write back to this. And it appears that perhaps he didn't. So, yeah, I mean, it's, there's just so much love there and it doesn't have because of the time that this takes place and, and because of, you know, just the strictures placed upon these characters, there's no way for it to express itself except, well, like you have to get married and be husband and wife. And right. I think that comes out of a lot of what we've been talking about in this chapter. We've been talking about the powers that husbands have mm-hmm. and the expectations for wives. And, and from an adult perspective, I see exactly Joe's point about why yeah. they couldn't be together because in the end, Lori isn't looking for a partner. He's looking for a wife, which is a very specific behavior and almost gender identity. If you haven't read it, read it, you've got to read Jin Manion's um, The Female Husband, which is on the idea of husband as a gender identity, which can be taken on by people of many different assigned sexes. Uh And that is not something... Joe would have access to in a relationship or Lou would have access to in a relationship with Alfie or Joe have access to in a relationship with Lori. Wife as kind of a a gender identity in this period is something that Joe can approach. Whether or not she could approach it with Professor Bear is a question for you to worry about in later episodes. I am not looking forward to Professor Bear. (laughs) Let's just set that aside. You know, I'm actually going to disagree with something you said. I don't think Lori is looking for a wife. I think Lori would love to be a wife. I think Lori is looking for a husband. I think there are so many examples where Lori is perfectly happy to submit to Joe, to be Joe's helpmate, to use like Bible language, right? I think if it were framed, I think Joe would be very happy being Lori's husband. And I think Lori would be very happy being Joe's wife. And they're not allowed to do that. And one of the little, you know, like flourishes that I love in the Gerwig movie is in the imagined fantasy land of Plumfield at the end of that movie, which the screenplay, by the way, like it does make clear that the quote unquote real ending is Joe watching the book be printed and the Plumfield sequence is a fantasy. In that sequence, we see everyone's, you know, bustling about the grounds, doing their own thing. Amy's painting and Lori's holding their baby. Lori in that moment, Gerwig gives Lori the duty of like being the, you know, the one to bounce the baby, I, <laughs> which I don't want to be accused of like handing out cookies for small gestures, but I was, <laughs> everyone knows I love David Foster Wallace. I was reading his essay, um, A Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again, which is about his depressive episode on a cruise ship. <laughs> and he's in the loading area waiting for the cruise liner to board. I swear this is relevant. And he's just literally writing in his notebook what will become the essays. Like every infant in this room has a great future in professional opera. <laughs> every infant in this room is being carried by its female parent. So I'm thinking about that line in context of the very deliberate choice to have Lori be the one to be like toting the baby at the end of the movie. I think there is a desire in Lori to be in a partnership and take on more of that feminine role. Just as we know that Joe wants to be the man of the house the husband and can't really access that. And even when we do get to Professor Bayer, right, the proposal scene is Joe being like, okay, this is how it's going to go. I can work outside of the home. I can earn my own money. (laughs) Right. It's, it's sort of a very deliberate construction of marriage that will allow Joe to perform some masculine roles. If that makes sense. 
So as of right now, they're still in this youthful, genderless stasis right now where they can kind of just really relate to one another and melt into one another. Like you said, origin of love, tea for tea. And it's it's beautiful to contemplate. I love it. <laughs> Do you have, you have any thoughts on, on any of that? You can- I've been totally convinced by your side. Okay. I, I, I wonder if I'm now I'm talking about chapters that aren't my business on the podcast, but <laughs> in the later chapter, I think it maybe it, it starts to beg the question of does Lori really know what he's asking for or is he yeah. asking for what he thinks he's supposed to want? The first time that he asks for Joe's hand and if he had gone to Europe and come back and in his fullness of adult development, mm-hmm would he have known what he was really asking for? But I will always be a shameless Joe and Lori shipper. And Lou Alcott cannot. (laughs) Lou Alcott has many things and opinions that I respect. And that one is not one of them. I just love them together as best friends. Yeah. It's so difficult because, you know, those galaxy brain memes, like smallest brain, Joe and Lori should get married. Bigger brain. Joe is a lesbian. Even bigger brain. Joe is trans and like galaxy grace. Joe and Lori are both trans and they belong together. Thanks. Bye. Like that's, <laughs> that's my progression. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Agree. You know, and it's interesting seeing how they're straight you know, like, like in the gayest possible way. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, it's uh, like we've talked in this chapter about Joe having this like very queer affection for Meg. And we've talked about Alcott you know, saying one of the reasons why I feel as though I am a man placed by some freak of nature into the body of a woman is that I've been in love with ever so many pretty girls and never once the least little bit with any man. And, you know, we do know that she had a romantic relationship with Ladislas Wisniewski. If I, I am not saying that right at all, but whatever. One of the inspirations for Lori, we, <laughs> I think based on reading that letter, you know, there were some feelings for Alfie Whitman, that she just did not have the vocabulary to process. My friend Marion once made a joke that was, um, sometimes you're a gay man and a lesbian and you only have one body to express that in. Oh my God. And and I can't help thinking Uh, about it now. You know, I do, for many reasons, I think it's important to just be able to say like, yeah, Lou Alcott was trans. I, I, that's a, that's a controversial take, but I'm happy to make it. I am comfortable saying that Lou Alcott was trans and queer, but as for like exactly what delineations that took, I have no goddamn idea, man. <laughs> it's just. Right. Yeah. So when I teach Lou or Louise Alcott, mm-hmm. I teach her as queer and as gender non-conforming. Mm-hmm. Because I, in my classes were doing a lot of historical work about these terms and I have to either choose to be a stickler about not being presentist, which means we're going to have to use words like invert or in what I encourage my students to do kind of as part of a critique of the ways that hard and fast labels come more from the position of power in particular from the medicalization of queerness. Mm -hmm. We can use words that describe more general behaviors. And I think that trans can fall under that, particularly in the kind of the trans, the academic trans studies conceptualization of trans as the journey away from one's assigned gender rather than placing an emphasis on the arrival. But I also use gender nonconforming because uh, the different characters that Alcott comes up with throughout her life, Mm -hmm. I think, can the autobiographical ones can read differently at different times. Like I wouldn't, call, I don't know that I would call tribulation trib periwinkle trans. She says at the same time that she in very Lou Alcott um, terms that she would love to be a lad and wishes she weren't born a woman, which mm-hmm. reads as very trans. But at the same yeah. time, we see her existing in the world as a woman who does boyish things yeah. And I think that that is another layer of gender that's important to talk about because we are conceptualizing gender in a very kind of Western 
way as the thing that exists in your soul, in your brain, that is the truth, right? (laughs) But I think that there's also something going on, for instance, with Trib Periwinkle, that has to do with the way her gender is expressed in her labor, in her relationships, and in the way other people perceive her kind of as a more social model of gender that Mm -hmm. I like to try to draw students' attention to because it illuminates the other things we read. Like we, I often pair that with Walt Women's Specimen Days, where he writes about also being kind of a nurse during, during the Civil War, yeah. um, and in which he takes on very deliberately feminized mothering positions towards men. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of a space of gender nonconformity for both of them. And I wouldn't call Walt Whitman trans. I call him a lot of things, but I wouldn't call him trans. <laughs> I was, you know, um, Walt Whitman like noted gay, right? In contemporary terms, <laughs> I think if he were around now, he would probably call himself gay. But like that, yes. I like to say queer for like that time period okay. to describe a nonconformity with the types of gender and sexuality that are associated with power, right? Mm-hmm. So kind of a more amorphous yeah. queer. There's yeah. a great book about this called Tomorrow's Parties that talks about this, but now, now, now I'm doing citations and I'm getting too academic. So I'm going to, I'm going to stop talking. No, please. Oh my God. Like, please, uh, you know, drop those breadcrumbs. I think in my understanding of Lou's biography, it does seem very clear to me that Lou is a trans man and was moving toward that in any way that she could. I, you know, it, it sucks to like say she in this context, but you know what I mean? But as far as what I try to do when I read the letters, the journals, and the fictional works, how do I square what seems like stated, obvious attraction toward women with also this kind of male homoeroticism? Like you talked about hospital sketches, there's certainly a scene in uh, hospital sketches where, you know, Trib Periwinkle observes two men kissing like David and Jonathan, which is, you know, that's interesting, right? There are moments in Little Women and in the Alfie Whitman letters that play with male homoeroticism. I love My Mysterious Mademoiselle, which is a tale of like male homoeroticism and cross-dressing. So this simultaneous desire for lesbianism, male homoeroticism, and then just kind of this like genderless milk bath that Joe and Laurie are in. And I think it might just be like Lou was searching. It was like, what is the right answer? What is the thing that is better than heterosexuality and makes more sense to me? And I don't know that Lou was ever able to find it. And, you know, that's incredibly, it's incredibly sad uh, in hindsight, but. Yeah. I listened to the episode where you talk about Lou Alcott's boots right before mm. I went to Orchard House for the first time. Yeah. Cause I was up in Massachusetts for a chunk of the summer mm-hmm. and I cried when I saw them. Yeah. Um, gosh, I'm going to really make myself sound like a crier on this podcast, but it's true. <laughs> and I'm not ashamed. I'm a crier and I cried when I saw them because I related so deeply to that urge for self-expression. And it was also beautiful for them to have that outlet. And I just, I, you know, they died fairly young relative <laughs> in, in the scheme of things. And they would never get the opportunity to transition in the way that we transitioned. Yeah. But at the same time, they, Lou, Louisa Alcott got opportunities to express herself themselves yeah. In many different ways to use different names with different people to be loved and supported, always kind of by their family of origin, as well as by friends around them, and to take on a lot of different gendered hats and a lot of different erotic hats. And yeah, I don't yeah. know that the fact that Alcott never settled on a queer identity that we would know today, or even a queer identity that was legible then, because there were certainly fairies, mm-hmm. mollies, whatever. We act like there weren't very legible queer identities then, and there were. But I, I wonder if we could also, at the same time, see that as kind of an exciting adventure for them or as yeah. A, yeah. an ode to the capaciousness of queer identity or of, of the ode to the capaciousness of ways of being queer, even in history, that they got to try on their hat and Lori's hat. And they were in love with pretend Lori and a little bit in love with the idea of Meg. And and <laughs> I don't know. I study a lot of sentimental literature and sometimes it's just because I'm sentimental. You know what? That is perfect. Thank you for taking my depressing conclusion and spinning it right around. 
No, no, truly. I think we got to go out on that high note here for so long. <laughs> I feel like we barely even scratched the surface of this chapter, but I just- I'm sorry. We did like no close reading. Oh, my students will be so- No, I mean, this is perfect. I'm going to have to have you back another time to dive just as deep. Egan, thank you so much for being thank on you. the show. Where can people find you online? Um, what work would you like to plug? Thank you so much for having me. I've had a blast. I'm not highly online, but I'd love it if people wanted to follow me on Twitter, which is Dean underscore lit for literature. That's my professional Twitter. I will be presenting at the upcoming MLA for those of you who are academic listeners and you do have quite an academic following, Peyton, if you don't know. Um, (laughs) I'll be at MLA talking about transness. And if you listened and liked what you heard, please, God, hire me. Thanks. (laughs) No, I mean, I second hire Egan. If I could hire Egan, I would hire Egan. If I were Lori Lawrence and I was like, okay, I'm going to start Lawrence College just so I can like be close to Plumfield, I would hire Egan. So (laughs) thanks, Peyton. Employ Egan. As always, I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. You can find me online at peytonthomas.ca on Twitter at Peytonology. Uh, You can buy my book, Both Sides Now, wherever fine books are sold. Uh, If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to tell your friends and drop us a rating and a review wherever you listen. All right. Thank you so much, Egan. Thank you so much. What a great time. Thank you. Thank you.